everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Macrovisor podcast coming to you Tuesday, October 24th. Today, we're going to talk about rates, global equities, the focus of China, Japan, and the US, as well as some talk about this earnings season. But before we move forward, I'd like to welcome my wonderful co-host, Aisha. Aisha, welcome to the show. Hey, man. It's great to be back doing the podcast once again, and we hope to make it more regular after a little bit of a hiatus. That's right. We shift our podcasting platform from Substack to something we're hosting on our own. The switching costs were a little bit intense, but it's worth it. Now we have full control over the distribution of our content, and we're looking forward to bringing a lot more of this type of content to you, both with Aisha and I talking about markets and macro, as well as regular special guests visiting and sharing their views. So today, we're going to start off talking a little bit about rates in the US and around the world. We've seen pressure higher, particularly on the long end of global interest rates. In fact, the median rise of 10-year global rates has been the fastest in history. And this is putting some pressure on a variety of different asset classes, whether it's debt or equity. It's interesting to watch this play out full well, knowing that the 10-year just over three years ago was at 0.5%. And now it's testing 5%. Indeed. So yesterday was an interesting day. I think it was a day which I I would like to say no one was looking forward to, but everybody was anticipating. Uh, It was the day that the 10-year yield actually hit 5%, something that we haven't seen since 2007. And um, But now what we're seeing is basically some of that pulling back at the longer end with the two-year a little bit more elevated today. In fact, that's because we do have a two-year auction today, and that could be part of the reason. But I just wanted to dig in a little bit about why we're seeing the long bonds go up. So obviously, it started off with the um, increase in oil prices, and you know the resurgence of inflation so this impulse that inflation will come back this sort of you know gave rise to global fears and started you know pushing longer end bond yields higher right and then of course we heard about uh, then came the fed meeting in september and obviously fed chair powell came out and said that they're not going to be cutting rates as much as was anticipated. So this higher for longer situation kind of played into the whole thing. And now with this strong growth in the GDP of the US, this again is putting pressure on the longer term yields and sort of um, increasing the term premium, which means that people now finally demand higher rates for longer tenure, which is higher risk. Um, so from everything that we can see, it doesn't seem like this should go away anytime soon. You have spoken quite a lot about treasury issuances, if you'd like to add something along those lines as well. Um, But I think that plays a part as well, right? I think so. I think we're still dealing with an inverted yield curve where 10s are yielding about 26 basis points, less than twos, where 30-day debt is yielding more than 30-year debt, where there's this sort of 
you know, premium that's lacking. I know we've heard from, uh, you know, fixed income folks on Bloomberg talking about, oh, there's a term premium here on the 10 year by 100 plus bips. This looks really attractive. We at Macrovisor are not seeing it that way. We see that the risk is further to the upside in long term yields until such a time where when one is taking risk with these longer duration assets, they are being compensated for that risk. To me, that means the 10 years should probably have a yield of 50, 100 bips higher than the two. That means the 30 yield, 30 years should have a yield of 150 to 200 bips higher than the 30 day. We need to see that expansion because as we move forward, and certainly the treasury market is telling us this in no uncertain terms, people are less confident that the U.S. fiscal house is in order. They're also increasingly concerned about the dollar's purchasing power in a period of 5, 10, 20, 30 years. What will that be? Will it even compensate you for the coupon if you're holding to maturity? Then, of course, there's the speculators who have constantly been looking for this bottom in bonds for capital appreciation, but there's nothing in the momentum that says we're there since the beginning of 2021. The 10-year, the 20, the 30 have been in prolific downtrends. We could go across the entire yield curve and say the same, but it's really pronounced on the long end. Again, the 10-year going from 50 bips to 500 yesterday is a pretty big deal. And so even though we've seen this big set of moves higher throughout all of this, there has been a constant, even historic inflow into the long end by investors in the U.S., whether they're households or institutions. So to say that this selling is actually a sign of bearishness, it's not the case in the U.S. It has a lot more to do with dynamics that are changing. As you said, there's more issuance. There's greater supply and longer tenors, which means you're probably going to see more upward pressure. And if you're sitting in Yellen's seat right now and you realize that you can issue debt, you don't have to refinance for 10, 20, or 30 years at appreciably lower interest rates than the shorter end of the curve. Why wouldn't you do that? It would be silly not to. So there's a there's a motivation to do this here as well, especially as we get into the first quarter of the government's 2024 fiscal year. So that's a component. But then on the other side, there's demand. Where's the demand? Well, we know it's rising here at home. 2023 is set for another historic year of inflows into treasuries, but it's not overseas. Japan has stepped back. China and Saudi have become net sellers of U.S. sovereign duration. And so these dynamics have shifted. The Fed used to be the biggest buyer at these auctions. Now they're letting these maturities roll off their balance sheet per the caps they've set forth with QT. So like you, Aisha, I'm also of the mind that rates are likely to go higher on the long end. The short end looks much more attractive. There may be opportunity in the short end as the Fed is closer to completing their hiking cycle. But on the long end, because QT is going to continue potentially for a year or two, maybe more to come, that's another driver of upward pressure on yields. So speaking of demand, I just wanted to uh, touch upon that as well. So you, you made a really good point about Japan and China not having the demand um, as they used to before. Um, but I also want to, even though we're seeing record inflows in Treasury, I also want to say that um, I think there is still a lack of demand from the market. And one of the reasons I say this is because we haven't seen risk assets sell off the way they should, right? So, and I think once risk equities actually start selling off more, um, we'll see the demand for bonds come back, right? And 
the other part is it's sort of like everybody's been hiding out in these seven big stocks, right? And I, I want to say these seven big stocks have kind of taken the place of bonds, of treasuries. You know, the safety of treasuries has now sort of shifted to these seven big companies. And because of that, I think we, we aren't seeing a lot of that demand also come back in bonds. Yeah, that's a it's a very good point, and it's interesting because you know we were really potentially looking for that fear bid with the very tragic events that have played out overseas. Typically, when there's fear in geopolitics, you get a bid in bonds, oil, gold, and the dollar. But this time around, there wasn't that bid in bonds. In fact, bonds continued to sell as we're seeing geopolitical tensions rise. So the point you make is very interesting. Will we see that bid come back to bonds in a big way if equities move appreciably lower? I think it's it's going to be a very important litmus test for this market moving forward. Absolutely. And I think what's going on in the U.S. is very different from what's going on in the rest of the world. Right. So speaking of equities in the U.S., we still see a lot of strength there, even though breadth is very poor and we're still seeing, you know, just some of those names, you know, take flight instead of the others. And even after this sell off uh, in September and October, uh, the U.S. still remains significantly elevated when you compare it to the rest of the world, right? So I think, you know, the strength of this GDP strength, in fact, we get the GDP numbers this Thursday, and we're likely to see uh, significantly higher growth than expected because of how resilient the U.S. economy has been. But that's not the case overseas. So Today, we just got PMI numbers from Europe, from Japan, from Australia, and most of the composite numbers have now fallen below into contractionary territory. And we continue to see the equity markets there as well. None of them are faring as well as the U.S. is. Sure, the U.S. is selling off, but it, it seems to be that these other markets are selling off far more than the U.S., it's a very interesting dichotomy indeed. We're seeing a breakdown in global equity markets across the world. You have important technical levels being violated to the downside, even including the Vanguard VTI fund, which is really a global equity fund. China's helped to lead the way lower with their disappointing lack of a reopening stimulus. We, of course, heard a little bit more about Xi last night as you posted in Breakfast Bites, visiting the People's Bank of China, maybe for optics, maybe for something more. We'll believe it when we see it. But when we look back at the U.S., the equity market has been very curious this year. Most bull markets, when they start from their bare lows, are led by small caps and equal weight. This, whether you want to call it a bull or not, we're a little leery of that term right here, has been led by about seven or eight stocks that are now trading at a P.E. of 45 without the growth to warrant it. In fact, if we look at the biggest of those seven, Apple, and we net out share buybacks, earnings have been down, and so is revenue, including in their flagship product, the iPhone. And yet it's tacked on a trillion dollars of market cap or 50% equity appreciation. This is not a natural, healthy bull market that is driven by improving fundamentals. This is a very narrow appreciation in a handful of stocks that now make up about 30% of the S&P 500. Put another way, if you're buying the market cap weighted S&P 500, 30 cents of every dollar you put in, 
goes to just a handful of stocks with the other 493 competing for that other 70 cents. Those other 493 are only bid up about 2% this year to date. So it's a very underneath the surface, if we're looking at the average of all those, it's, it's a very different dichotomy. That is to say the equal weight is massively underperforming the market cap weight to levels that we really haven't seen since 2021. And this tells me, particularly with the amount of fund concentration in these same seven, that like you said, people are kind of treating them like bonds, like a safe haven. They're running to them and yet they're becoming less and less safe as their prices rise or even remain resilient with a lack of earnings and revenue growth while interest rates are rising. These premiums are now deeply negative for these mega caps. And even if we zoom out to the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100, we see similar between the six month treasury and what earnings yields look like moving forward. To us, fixed income on the very short end still appears to be a more attractive place, get 5.5% risk-free, than speculating in an S&P where most of the index isn't moving and the part that is, is very expensive. So I think you were being a little gentle when you didn't want to sort of use the term bull market, but I would say this is not a bull market at all. And I think we've talked about this <clears throat> quite a bit offline, and we agree that nothing uh, in this rally constitutes a bull market, right? Uh, I know you can put an arbitrary 20% increase and just call it a bull market, but it's not. Given the way it's behaved, given the poor breath, given what's been leading, it's not a bull market. Um, and I think we are seeing some of that correction now. So we're seeing some of that adjustment, let's say, uh, now. Um, Speaking of which, we have earnings season going on. Today, we have important earnings. We have Microsoft and Google. Uh, this week, in fact, uh, it was something like 40% of 40% um, of the S&P reports this week in terms of market cap. Um, so a very important week, and I think we can see a lot of volatility this week. Now, so far, earnings have been decent, but at the same time, growth hasn't been um, growth hasn't been extensive. So, what I mean by that is basically earnings are beating estimates, but the actual earnings growth has been negative. So, there's been an earnings decline, and this just goes to show what's happened prior to earnings season. So analysts have gotten together and they have lowered estimates, right? So it's easier for these companies to sort of beat estimates, but at the same time, the actual growth is not there. Um, and when you dig in a little bit more, something that we reported in our earnings preview yesterday was that the reaction to earnings is now 70% negative reaction to earnings, even though we're seeing a lot, a lot of beats coming through, right? And that just goes to tell you that the market is not fooled anymore. So there was a time when beats and misses were all that mattered. But I think the individual investor is now becoming far more savvy after two to three years of being very um, vigilant in the market. I think individual investors, retail investors are becoming savvy and they are starting to look below the surface. And so a lot of the warnings that these companies put out saying that the consumer is slowing, uh, saying that, you know, logistics is slowing, uh, there's a freight recession going on. Um, all of these warnings are getting through 
to the investor now. And we're seeing that reaction in terms of earnings um, where, you know, companies are gapping down instead of just reacting to the beat or miss. It's an environment that's been a long time coming, too, because for much of this year, there's been this idea, well, as long as they beat estimates, it's at least not as bad as we thought. But then coming into the third quarter, Bank of America and Goldman said, hey, wait a minute, the trough is probably behind us. We probably saw that in the second quarter. Lo and behold, that's not the case at all. Analysts are dropping those estimates, as you pointed out. So we're seeing negative growth, which tells us the trough is yet to come. Morgan was more of the mind that we see it this or next quarter. That appears to indeed be the case here. And the earnings reactions that we've seen last quarter and going into this quarter have been about 4.25 times more volatile than the previous 25-year average. So it tells us that we're getting into a period of time where there's a lot less certainty about what should happen next, that there is a lot of conflicting ideas in this market. There is the crowd that thinks, oh, they beat the estimates. Everything's fine. But now there's the larger crowd that says, hey, wait a minute. We keep getting told over and over that last quarter was the trough. And yet we're digging a deeper hole. Why would we want to be long this stuff when the reason we're long is we're looking for appreciation? in revenue and earnings, and we're not seeing it. So I think it's a concern, particularly given the now negative equity risk premium, that it makes a lot more sense to be in the shorter end of the yield curve than to be in risk assets, particularly the longer duration risk assets that could be pressured as the yield curve potentially moves out of this inversion into a steepening into positivity. And remember, if we get really powerful GDP data this week, what's that going to do to the long end? It's certainly not going to push it down. It's likely to push it higher. And when we have these good news economic data points, it often leads to higher rates and lower stocks because the mantra right now by traders and some of these investors that are higher frequencies, they're looking for bad data to compel the Fed to come back to the punch bowl of stimulus sooner than is being prognosticated at present. And the further off that gets pushed by stronger data, the less optimistic they are. And that's reflected in the flows and positioning we see as a reaction to those data points. Absolutely. Speaking of earnings season, so we're having earnings season in Europe as well. Today, a lot of the UK banks reported and most of them actually disappointed. Uh, surprisingly, we thought the net interest margin, this increase in interest rate would be driving um, UK banks higher because, you know, they make more money by lending at the long end and, you know, borrowing or taking deposits at the short end. But that isn't really the case now. And Part of that has to do with the inversion in the yield curve, but also part of that has to do with the fact that there is a decline in uh, lending, right? So as I, I posted this, I want to say like three weeks ago, where I, I showed that the UK loans, the, where I showed the amount of UK loans have been coming down. Now, much of Europe and UK are based on floating rates of interest, and therefore it just makes sense that the demand for loans are coming down. There's less activity. We saw PMI's manufacturing data is coming down. And all of these sort of contribute um, to lower levels of earnings. So that's one thing. But then I also want to talk about, you know, 
the luxury segment. And the luxury segment, you know, there are segments that are doing well, but at the same time, LVMH put out a huge warning saying that, you know, sales are not how they should be, and they are wary of the macroeconomic environment. Part of that goes back to China again, right? And what we're seeing in China is that the activity is not coming out of there. So no matter what she is doing, President Xi is doing, or um, the uh, People's Bank of China is doing, the market just doesn't seem to recover there because there is definitely a confidence issue. And um, I think until and unless this is resolved, Europe stands to lose quite a lot because about 20% of their trade is done with China. Um, 20% of their revenues, I want to say, comes from China. And so that's a big and, and an important thing to remember. And it's interesting, too, because if you think about it, China has never been a capitalist country. It's been a country that embraced some elements of free markets to certain free trade zones in an effort to sort of stimulate the economy, bring in foreign investment. And now we've seen a lot of that curtailed by Xi, really ham-fisted approach of trying to crack down on what he calls corruption. But I think part of this is really just solidifying his hold on power. And that's eroded the confidence of a lot of people that wanted to invest in China, but now are scared because they don't know when the next impulsive crackdown is going to be, what the impact might be. And then on the other side of that, for a year, we've all been told stimulus is coming. Just hold on for it. It'll be there any minute now. And it has not come. And every subsequent attempt to talk about stimulus has now seen a lesser and lesser impact on Chinese equities because investors and traders are reluctant to believe on uh, basically with the sort of party line that's being touted. I wanted to quickly shift over to the U.S. earnings picture for a moment and just talk about what happened this morning with Verizon. Verizon was one of the companies that we covered in this week's earnings preview. And the big thing that we were looking there for there was this idea that wireless subscriber churn was turning around and they were able to get into growth again. This morning, they said they added 100,000 post-paid customers, which is really great. In fact, analysts were only expecting 63,000. So it's fair to say Verizon is coming out of this churn. They have been upgrading their 5G network. They're pushing further into their Fios broadband offering, which is very competitive versus cable companies because it's fiber right to the premises. At Macrovisor, we have been constructive on Verizon. We have been looking for this opportunity to start really seeing the company turn its ship around. I think that's what this earnings is starting to tell us. The reaction has been rather profound to the upside. Verizon's up 8.54%, the largest one-day gain since 2020. So interesting that you should talk about earnings season again. I just wanted to touch upon the earnings season for Japan now. So Japan, I know Japanese equities have been pulling back for a little bit, and it makes sense because, you know, there's all this talk about Japan changing their stance on monetary policy with inflation coming in. But this time around, inflation came in softer than expected. And this isn't something that we want to see because Japan wants inflation to take hold and remain stable for a while. So one of the things that we're likely to see during the next meeting, the Bank of Japan meeting is on the 31st of October. One thing that we're likely to see is them sort of increasing their estimates for you know inflation. And if they do that, then that's a sign that they are a little bit more convinced 
that inflation is taking hold. But what we see from consumption and from wages, things still look quite weak at the moment. So I'm not completely convinced that they are going to you know, change their stance just yet. We might see something in the second quarter of 2024, but as of now, I don't think they're going to change their stance. Having said that, there's been a lot of reports about um, yield curve control being changed, as in the band being widened once again. So if you want to understand the implications of that, I wrote a free article last time in July, June, July, when they were about to do it um, in July. Um, so if you want to go back and check that on the Macrovisor website, um, I think that gives you a guide as to what to expect. Um, if they do widen the band again. However, they are doing unscheduled purchases in order to keep the rates down and within the band of 1%. So again, I wouldn't completely disregard this, but I think it's too soon for them to widen the band one more time. But all reports suggest that they will be monitoring this very closely, um, which gives me, um, you know, the segue to talk about equities over there. So I still think equities there are extremely undervalued. Right now, their price-to-book ratio is 1.3 times for all Japanese companies, um, listed companies. And their current PE ratio is at 12.6, which is far, far lower than anyone any country that we know of, right? And in terms of earnings, they've had about 11% of their companies report thus far. What we've seen is they've reported an actual growth of 24%. So that's massive. When you look at every other country, we're seeing growth coming down. And yet for Japan, we see growth actually increasing. Their blended earnings growth rate is supposed to be 4.7% for this earnings season. So I think times have changed in Japan. I think they are finally gathering steam again. I think these companies are coming alive again. I think with interest rates, interest rates are high, but not as high. But what we see is capital flowing into these companies, right? Capital flowing into equities. And with all this foreign capital flowing into equities, there is a way for these companies to reinvest. So business investments are going up. Consumption is going up. Um, and so the country is now in a good place um, for me to say that I still think equities have another leg higher from here. So although we're seeing it pull back heavily in the last couple of weeks because of rates going up, I think once this settles, it would be a good time to re-enter Japan again. It's interesting, too, because when we look at the Nikkei on a technical basis, when we had our first bottom in October, it was this look below reversal that happened in Nikkei futures on October 4th in U.S. Uh, time zone, of course. And then we last night had another look below reversal into today. So if we're going to follow the technical pattern that the Nikkei has had in the past, this look, look below reversal could actually be an attractive starting point for an entry into Japanese equities. From a technical and momentum basis, this type of move tells us one thing. Sellers tried to take control, buyers gobbled up all that supply and took it right back higher. And if we see follow on from there, then from a technical perspective, that's a reversal that one would want to get long into covering shorts if there were any 
So moving right along to the commodities markets, we have seen a retrenchment in oil. This made a lot of sense. Remember that last week we began talking about positioning in oil being pretty lopsided to the long side. It's something I've talked about on Twitter. It's something I've talked about in our sister service on TraderAid. And it's an area that prompted me to be cautious. And now we're seeing some of that lopsided positioning come off. And it's very simple to me what's happening in oil and to a lesser extent gold here. When everyone crowds into one side of the boat and they get very, very adamant about one type of positioning, in this sense long, there's not a lot of folks left to buy into that to push price further. And so we need to see this unwinding of positioning. And so what I saw in crude was in Brent, there was an enormous amount of long side uh, speculative participation. And then in West Texas Intermediate, there was an enormous amount of call skew, suggesting that buyers of options were really looking for upside, not worried about downside. Now, to me, as a contrarian, when I see things like this, I don't want to be in the trade anymore if I'm long. doesn't mean I'm going to get short right there, but it means I just want to flatten out, watch what happens next. I'm still constructive on oil. So don't think I'm an energy bear. I'm not. I think the supply demand issues tell us that oil can continue to move back into the low 90s, but I'm waiting to see where that price reversal starts from. We did find the last two bottoms in crude, mapping it from its bottom trend line. We'll see if we see something similar to that today. But for now, we're looking at crude. We're watching and making a, a, a list of energy stocks to potentially buy into this dip. That's an area of the US market where we do remain constructive. Shifting into gold, we had this sort of exhaustive rally where gold prices moved up almost $200 from peak to trough. And to me, because this was largely driven by fear and the psychological element of gold going from you know basically despair to euphoria, I'm not as attracted to gold here. I think it has some room to retrench. It doesn't mean I want to short it, but it means I'm certainly not wanting to be in longs. If I had any longs in gold here and I was a short-term trader, I would be flattening them out. We do see the potential for rates to move higher as well as the dollar that typically puts pressure on gold. In the softs, we have some more constructive looking price action playing out, particularly in corn and wheat, where the fundamentals appear to be solid moving into the later part of this year. These are areas of the market that we remain constructive and believe that it's not a bad place to nibble. Doesn't mean get super long. These are volatile. So if ever they occupy a place in your portfolio, it should be a small place. We do believe that sizing positions based on their relativity or their relative volatility is really important. Understanding that you're going to have to have a wider stop on a position that's more volatile, therefore it should be a smaller position to reduce your overall risk. And so overall, the commodities market is a mixed picture. Dr. Copper is still diagnosing a slowing global economy and global PMI seemed to confirm that view today. The United States was a bit of an exception in that, whereas we saw with our PMIs, prices are going down and activity is rising. What some have described sort of Goldilocks prints, but they're so close to being flat that I don't think they're too, they're, they're much to get too excited about in terms of the implications for the economy and earnings. I like how you put it. If everybody's on one side of the boat, <laughs> that's a really good analogy. Thank you for that. Um, so I think all in all, um, just to sum everything up, uh, I think caution is still warranted. 
where the US is concerned, where Europe is concerned, where Australia is concerned, where China is concerned. So we're seeing inflation numbers. I keep I keep posting this uh, tweet on, um, with every inflation reading, I keep posting this tweet on Twitter saying that, you know, the inflation story is not over. And we're seeing that in various countries. So we're seeing it in Indonesia, in Malaysia. So it's across the world, right? Um, in fact, Japan is probably the only one where they want inflation and they're not getting it. But perhaps next month's reading will will show us something different. So we are cautious about almost every country in the world now. Um, I think the only country that we are quite bullish about is probably Japan. And then second to that would probably be India, who's still doing quite well. Yes, there's been a pullback, but that has to do more with uh, global yields rising, plus um, their internal uh, metrics as well. So we've seen some earnings come out for uh, and metrics come out for the Adani group, the group that you know fell quite heavily earlier in the year. Uh, and some of that is driving the negative momentum. But as a country, I think they're doing quite well. I think they have all the right metrics. They've got inflation. Uh, I don't want to say completely under control, but I think that they're, they, they have a decent hold on it for now. Um, and so we still remain constructive on these on Japan and India. But for the rest of the world, I think caution is still warranted. It is. It absolutely is. And I think that that's a great place to wrap it here. There's a lot of moving parts. We advise that caution is the warranted stance here. I don't think that it's a good time to get really bullish or bearish of anything. But as we look at global markets, there is a bearish view developing that tells us that maybe whatever this was, again, reluctant to call it a bull market, is ending. So let's Take the time to appreciate the complexity of these moving parts. We've got a lot of central bank decisions coming up, the ECB, Bank of England, Bank of Japan, Federal Reserve uh, over the next two weeks. We also have peak earnings season playing out and the potential for that to drive volatility in either direction is higher than normal. So it's a great time to sit back, watch these trends shape, look for opportunities that are actionable where risk and reward are in your favor. And of course, as a part of what we do at Macrovisor, we'll continue to cover that with our dashboard as well as our ideas. And for folks out there listening that have any questions, feel free to write us an email, hello at macrovisor.com. If you're listening to this on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon, feel free to leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you.